This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'd like to welcome you all today to the podcast, which will feature a discussion on the epidemiology and impact of the opioid overdose crisis on critical care units in the United States. We're very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Jennifer Stevens, who is the lead author of a publication entitled The Critical Care Crisis of Opioid Overdoses in the United States, which was recently published uh, in the Annals. So Dr. Stevens is an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and the Associate MICU Director at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. So welcome, Dr. Stevens, and thank you very much for participating in this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So as we all know, the opioid use and overdose crisis in this country has gotten so much lay and professional press coverage. So I think your study, uh, besides being quite interesting, is both timely uh, and relevant. So I'm, I'm really anxious to talk to you about your findings and some of the implications uh, for the long term. So using a very large database, you and your colleagues identified over 21,000 opioid overdose admissions requiring ICU care, and your study found some very interesting uh, epidemiologic findings, including increased ICU util utilization in this population and, and an increase uh, in the mortality rate, especially within the last couple of years. So uh, to start us off, I thought it would be helpful if you can give us a brief overview of the opioid crisis in the United States in general, and then we can launch into a discussion about the critical care implications. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. N that's a reasonably large question, though. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, the opioid crisis in the U.S. is something I think a lot of us are living, right? So a lot of us are living it both in the intensive care units and taking care of the patients um, who come in and are living it in our personal lives as well. This is a crisis that's touched a lot of um, a lot of uh, physicians and nurses and different clinicians, uh, both in and outside the hospital. Um, right now, I'd say that this is something that continues to accelerate the, um, the opioid crisis in general. The recent CDC numbers are actually from 2015, which suggests that about 95, excuse me, 91 people die a day from opioid overdoses with upward trends in past month use of heroin, number of people starting heroin in the past years, and opioid deaths largely attributed um, mostly to fentanyl and other synthetic, uh, synthetically created opioids in recent months and years. The Time, New York Times and the National Center for Health Statistics did a recent look for 2016 and found that accidental drug deaths actually rose 22% over the last year. Yeah. So this really continues to be moving pretty quickly. You know, the, the more historical perspective is that this is something that really came out of making prescription opioids more available for non-cancer pain in the 90s um, with the increased use of OxyContin in about a 10-year period going from a little under half a million prescriptions to 6 million prescriptions. Um, and that also happened to lead to a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the major pharmaceutical company that was, at cent that was really central to, to this marketing. But since then, the, the um, synthetically derived opioids, the non-prescription opioid drug market shifts so rapidly, 
it's led to what we've seen in the very distinct regionality of the epidemic and the patterns of drug distribution, often sort of ahead of where we can almost even keep track of it. So right now, you know, I think it's just sort of surrounding all of us in a, in a new and um, an accelerating way. I think that's a wonderful overview, and, and I think what you said is, is quite true. And, and living and working in the Philadelphia area, we, uh, you know, we see this, and, and one of the sections of Philadelphia called Kensington has been at the epicenter of the crisis here, and it's gotten a lot of national press with what's happening in, in, in even our local neck of the woods. So I think that's a wonderful takeoff to discussion about your study. So, so how did the study come to be? What was the impetus for designing such a study? You know, I think a lot of... It's, kind of similar to where you were just coming from. So my senior author on this paper is in Chicago. I'm here in Boston. And when we compared notes on just through our um, conversations around other research that we were doing, we were sharing stories that we were caring for more and more young patients and um, caring for their families when they were admitted with complications really related to opioid use disorder in our ICUs. We were looking at ways in which we had very distinct regionality to that patient population and and the um, challenge that was for us personally, but also for uh, the staff that we work with, for our um, trainees who were seeing patients who were similar age to them with these complications. So the impetus was quite genuinely wanting to know if there was um, a national pattern, a national epidemiology to what we were experiencing within our ICUs at our institutions. So, so tell us about the study design, and then after that, obviously, uh, please summarize for us the major findings of your study. Absolutely. So, you know, essentially, this is just very, very basic epidemiology. So, we looked at um, over 22 million admissions, 4 million of which required ICU stays, in 162 hospitals across 44 states that participate in Vizient that used to be um, University Healthcare Consortium, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and over the time period of January 2009 to September 2015, so that we were trying to do the most up-to-date epidemiology that we could do at the time. Um, and then we simply looked at the, the um, incidence and prevalence of patients admitted with any ICD-9 code for opioid use disorder and, excuse me, opioid overdoses. And why that's important is that we really were using billing data to try to get at some of this. Um, we studied number of admissions in hospital mortality, and then, as you mentioned, a couple of uh, hospital resources, um, specifically cost, um, but also renal replacement therapy, mechanical ventilation, ways in which um, this population in the setting of an overdose might, might have ICU needs. The, the major findings were, in general, that we saw major increases uh, over this time period in ICU admissions for opioid overdoses. But we also saw a rise in opioid overdose, excuse me, opioid overdose mortality uh, over the same time period, which is, which is a little different in epidemiology. Oftentimes when you see an increase in the prevalence of something, it's often because we're coding it more and then less sick people are getting caught up in that net. And so then you'll, you'll see the subsequent mortality go down. The fact that we saw the opposite of that is, is pretty significant. We saw that on average, the mortality, the adjusted mortality, I should say, was increasing at a rate of about 0.5% per month. But that, that sort of belies that it really started to increase after April 2012. 
Um, and then we also saw a rise in costs of about 60% and a rise in renal replacement therapy, but not mechanical ventilation. So, and in some, I mean, in summary, basically, I'd say that this is that there's a growing number of people who are sick from their opioid overdose that they need ICU care. But also, despite everything that we can do in the ICU, more patients are dying from complications of their overdose than, than we've ever seen before. So that when we think about overdoses, it's not just um, death and survival, of course. It's, it's, there's ex extensive personal and societal costs that come from that. But we were really only focusing on um, whether or not we were really seeing this rise in prevalence over time and whether or not we were seeing also a concomitant rise in mortality. So just to put some numbers to that, so a study, you reported that from that period from 2009 to 2015, that the opioid overdose admissions that required ICU increased 34% from 44 per 10,000 10, ICU admissions to 59 per 10,000 ICU admissions. Uh, and as you said, especially with an inflection point after April 2012, I mean, that's, that's more dramatic than I've seen uh, for a lot of other indications. So I think that those numbers, as far as I can tell, are, are quite striking. Um, and, and, and pretty impressive given, given how quickly this, this happened. So what were, the, what were the reasons or the most common reasons that people got admitted to the ICU? We didn't break down their admitting diagnosis or even their um, comorbidities. We did look at other things that might run with the opioid overdose that they, that they had incurred. So we looked at aspiration pneumonia, rhabdo, anoxic brain injury, septic shock, um, Again, all using billing data, and I emphasize that because billing data often underestimates the frequency of, of a lot of these events. Um, but even despite that, a quarter of our patients came in with aspiration pneumonia, and, and concerningly, 8% of those in this population had anoxic brain injury. So we're not talking just about um, uh, folks who have a, a rapidly reversible, or at least in some cases, a rapidly reversible overdose they spend 12 hours on the vent and they come off. We're talking about at least a, a subset of this population with a really, with a really devastating um, complication of this, of this um, acute and chronic medical condition. Hmm. So as a follow-up to that, again, maybe, maybe you weren't able to get this from the data from, uh, from the studies on, but, but what were the major causes of death um, uh, in, in the patients that you looked at? Can you, can you glean that? We can't. You know, it's it's part of why there's often a delay in some of the um, national or state tallies that we see of accidental deaths related to opioids. These are these are data often li limited to state medical examiners. Um, so that work that I mentioned by the the Times and the National Center for Health Statistics um, had to go to individual medical examiners at the state level to glean those sorts of data. So we don't we don't unfortunately have the reported causes of death. So you mentioned that you used the Vizient database, um, and as we know, the hospital and ICU admissions you looked at were from a group of centers that were typically urban academic centers. So, so what do you think about uh, the impact of this on smaller community-based hospitals? What do you think the impact is there? Do you think there's a lower threshold to admit overdose patients to the ICU in smaller hospitals, which, which would suggest that IC utilization may be even more profound than those institutions. What do you think? How? Uh, what do you think about that data applied to a more general group of hospitals across the country? 
I mean, I think it's likely, as you say, that we that extends beyond the the boundaries of what we were able to investigate in these in these data. But I think it seems most likely, and and probably um, more challenging for smaller community hospitals with smaller ICUs is that they may also lack the support um, in their mental health or social work groups to provide supports for those um, patients and families. They may not always have the resources that they need in terms of specialist care. Um, I imagine in the sickest of cases, these are patients who get transferred when there's the ability to do so to more um, tertiary care centers. But again, th that's that was outside of what we were able to explore with these data, because as you point out, Vizian is predominantly um, an academic, uh, a, a consortium of academic health centers. We also wanted to make sure that we were tracking the same 162 hospitals over the same time. And whereas Vizian is casting a broader net more recently, the um, hospitals that have been in this, these data since 2009 were more likely to be urban and academic. So there's so many intriguing things that I, that I, that I um, learned and, and had questions about from your study. So one of them was, so why do you think that admission to the ICU during summer months was associated with lower mortality? That's one of the things you talked about in your discussion. I thought our audience would be interested in hearing the answer to that. I d you know, I don't have the answer, but I thought it was fascinating. My hypothesis, and this is simply a hypothesis, is that overdoses in the colder parts of the country in winter might be more fatal before somebody ever arrives in the ICU, but or after you arrive in the ICU and you've been you've had a greater degree of exposure as a patient. But it, we didn't test for this. There was distinct seasonality. I think other folks have looked at the seasonality of ICU admissions in general and found that this is the case, and we wanted to make sure that our when we looked at this, we were drawing appropriate um, conclusions about the question we were asking. But, but I agree that's a it's a fascinating um, trend that sort of adds to the regionality of this, um, the regionality and the temporality of this epidemic that it it washes over us in different ways. Yeah, interesting. So, so the other thing um, is you noted in the study that that about 10% of your ICU patients who came in with overdoses required me mechanical ventilation. But interestingly, it doesn't seem like the rate of, of mechanical ventilation use increased over time. On the other hand, it was very clear that renal replacement therapy was required something on the order of about 37 times more often in these patients. Any insights as to why that is, the sort of apparent disconnect between supportive modalities you would think that as more people get admitted to the ICU, that more would have respiratory depression and require mechanical ventilation. So what do you think about that? Can you let's shed some light on, on that? I think that's a product of the type of research of, of using um, billing data to do this type of research. You know, it's hard to imagine um, mechanical ventilation uh, staying the same. And as you point out, also the mortality not changing. I mean, the mortality not almost decreasing. And it's also hard to imagine the opioid overdose patient who comes in this sick who doesn't need a ventilator, right? So um, it, this really feels like a product of using billing data. Um, what that means functionally, though, is that the problem is much worse. Like as to your point about community hospitals, the problem is more much worse than we're able to quantify using these methods. Renal replacement therapy potentially is more of a resource burden on an institution, and so people might be more attuned to billing for it than they are mechanical ventilation. would would be my would be my guess. But we're not the first folks to observe that that billing data doesn't necessarily match up perfectly with resource use. It's, it's specific, but not necessarily sensitive. 
So uh, the other issue is that, that heroin overdose was associated with an increase in the monthly mortality among the ICU patients, but not for, for those who came in with prescription drug overdoses. So why is that? I think we're and I think we're actually seeing that play out in the year and a half since we since our um, of our endpoint of our of our data as well. Um, I think that heroin uh, is um, potentially um, uh, and, and I should actually say I should say heroin and synthetic opioids, which we don't track, we don't bill for, and we don't really know um, the magnitude of that in this paper, they're more unpredictable and they're um, more rapid acting. So they're unpredictable in their purity. Uh, even if folks are using um, drugs from the same dealer, the purity and the source of those drugs might vary substantially. Um, they are varying in how quickly they come on. Um, and then even things like Narcan as a result for bystander use or first responder use, Narcan uh, is short-acting, and so that's going to um, have varying degrees of impact for heroin or less than pure heroin. So, you know, the biggest increase that we've seen even since 2015 in opioid overdoses has been in synthetics and in heroin. Prescription drugs um, is, you know, maybe maybe a thing of the previous decade, and now our decade is facing facing the problem with heroin and synthetics. So I'm glad you brought up the issue of, of using naloxone or Narcan. So obviously, many state and local first responder programs, including my own my own county in, in Pennsylvania, are advocating for and funding the use of, of Narcan in the field. Do you think this could impact ICU admissions in a positive way? Yeah, you know, I would hope so, right? Because so... What do we know about naloxone? We know that bystander naloxone um, has been shown to increase the odds of recovery from an overdose ninefold, but not notably typically hospital admissions. Um, we know that a lot of states are trying to improve access to this. Um, I think July of this year, uh, all states have tried to, and, and the District of Columbia have tried to extend the access to naloxone. And there's there's generally good good Samaritan coverage at least in 40 states I believe at this point um, for people who report an overdose in good faith. I do think that um, that since it doesn't necessarily affect hospital admissions, it might not necessarily affect the ICU admissions, but it stands to reason that it would affect ICU mortality from overdose, right? That if it doesn't make any sense that there's first responders like police officers or firefighters who are not currently carrying Narcan and are waiting for medics to show up because every minute for anoxic injury and whatnot is going to matter. Um, so it 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 begs to reason it it stands to reason that this should affect ICU mortality. Although I'm just really not certain about how it would affect admission. I, I think um, I think your point's very well taken. The it would it would stand to reason that it would affect. Uh, mortality and and probably probably even ICU admissions because again less patients you know developing complications of delay in 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 in, in quick in therapy um, so again one of the one of the provocative uh, things that came out of your study is in fact uh, what interventions and we'll talk about that in a little bit what interventions do you think would be helpful um, in dealing with with ICU utilization and ultimately uh, the mortality which is which is obviously what we care a lot about. 
Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I would add that my colleagues who work closely with injection drug users in the community report that the, a lot of their patients say they've reversed more overdoses in the fields than doctors ever know yep, about yep. or ever see in the clinic or the hospital, right? So, yep. so it does. I think your point is well taken. So, so why do Massachusetts and Indiana have twice as many ODs requiring ICU care? And maybe maybe this has something to do with an oxone, but but you're from Massachusetts and you probably have some insight into that. Yeah, you know, it's I, the details of the state variation is is outside of the scope of our our study. I'd say that in Massachusetts, we've been a leader in disseminating naloxone, not only to first responders but also community members. Um, so one possibility might be um, might be that. Uh, at least in Massachusetts, there's a subset of people who are discovered and rescued who might have died elsewhere, but are, you know, still very sick after their rescue. Alternatively, and I don't know if this is true in Massachusetts in, or Indiana, one possibility is that there might be fewer rescues. Uh, unfortunately, our data allow us, don't allow us to distinguish between these two possibilities or even know whether the um, source of that finding is similar or different or the opposite across these two states. I think it just really speaks to the regionality of this of this of this epidemic. And and as you noted as you noted, the rates, for example, in other states, including my own in Pennsylvania, those those numbers continue to, to increase. And I think those are states, for example, and the kind of data that you're generating and that future studies would generate, I think will help, you know, local lawmakers and governors, et cetera, to really I think have some have some data to help um, to help develop public policies and medical policies to, to try to deal with um, an epidemic that, that doesn't seem like um, it has an end in sight. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to take the step to go into a little bit of math. Um, so so your study found that the average cost per ICU admission for overdoses increased, as you mentioned, 60 percent over the six years of the study. And the difference was about thirty four thousand dollars per admission. So if you do simple math, um, so 21,700 emissions, $34,000 extra cost. So $737 million is the simple-minded approach to this. But, but it, do you have an idea of what the true magnitude of the economic impact, not, not, not just obviously the other, the other societal and psychological impact, but, but the cost of this? I think you're right. I think it's likely to be enormous. Um, I think that ICU is inherently a, it's a costly, costly part of our health system. And it's still, however, just one part of the health system. So what you're capturing there is is the um, cost to our particular chapter. I, I do think that there's a large cost from the subset of patients also who who functionally become chronically critically ill because of their overdose in the ICU, or even the subset of folks who have to have long-term dialysis um, as a result of their rhabdo and their renal failure associated with with their prolonged um, prolonged downtime, um, it, we wouldn't necessarily see that in in these cost data because these are cost data that are reported to Vizient at the hospital level. Um, but then there's, as you mentioned, the substantial societal cost of young working age people who no longer no longer are able to work or who die, or the human costs to their family and their children and their parents, and all of the extended costs out into society to make sure first responders are capable of doing this, are trained, and the larger community is able to cope with the consequences of this epidemic. I mean, the, the 737 million, I think you cited, is, is at the center of this growing 
concentric circle of, of growing costs related to this epidemic, essentially. Unbelievable. Um, so I was, I was struck by uh, something that you and your co-authors mentioned in your discussion and that your group considers any admission to the ICU preventable. So why, why'd you say that? And how do you achieve that goal? I think, you know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's, it's fundamentally intended to be a provocative statement, right? That the idea that, um, this is functionally, a, a chronic disease, opioid use disorder is a chronic disease and that we should be able to, um, provide enough community support, um, uh, medical, uh, medical, um, uh, institutional support to keep, um, this population from having such devastating overdoses. Um, at the end of the day, I don't know that we'll ever functionally be able to achieve that because it is a devastating, um, it is a devastating chronic disease with these terrible acute flares. But I think that if we had enough resources dedicated to this, we shouldn't be seeing this population dying in our ICU. Well, it's, it's certainly a, it's certainly a a good goal and, and one that, you know, obviously um, you have to think big um, to really accomplish any of our goals. So I think this is again, a very provocative and, and great start to that conversation, particularly focused on, on the ICU. So, uh, in terms of you raise the issue that it's important that we need a national approach to developing strategies to care for these people, uh, specifically in, in the ICU. Can you uh, just expound on some of those ideas more specifically? Sure. So within the ICU, I think there's ways that we can think about order better and then also how to integrate our care in the unit with care outside of the unit. So with regards to the first one, how do we think about sedation for this population, for example? How do we think about um, delirium and management of their underlying opioid use disorder when we have to do um, other, other interventions, such as prolonged mechanical ventilation treatment for their ARDS, uh, management of, of their GI bleed? How, how are we um, taking care of this population? How are we integrating this chronic disease with that, um, with the rest of our care? But then there's also the question of um, how to integrate this population when they leave our ICUs with the um, larger uh, supports in the medical system or the, or the community if they happen to be there. Because we know that um, this is a chronic disease that responds to treatment if effective treatment is made available. Um, these are have, making sure that our patients who are admitted with overdose leave with Narcan or that their family members leave with Narcan so that they can make sure that if they have another overdose that it's reversed. And then also connecting them with medication um, assisted therapy, which can reduce mortality you know, close to half in several studies, um, including uh, recently by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health as well. So making sure that, that folks are connected with long-term, whether that be methadone or buprenorphine or whatever medication-assisted therapy is available for this population, so they can continue to treat this like a chronic disease, right? We wouldn't send somebody out who was admitted with diabetic ketoacidosis without insulin. So how are we, how can we be thinking about this um, patient population as a patient population with, a, with an ongoing process that we have to continue to address? 
Yeah, it's it's really outside the box thinking, right? I, the the thought of sending somebody with Narcan um, is a really a revolution. It's simple and it's it's obviously effect, effective. But you know, I know there's been resistance on the part of some municipalities to do that in some police departments. But but really, the the outside the box um, sort of forward thinking is is going to be critical. And I think the conversations that your paper started and hopefully some future papers, I think, are hopefully are going to drive that not only on a you know governmental level but also you know at the at the medical center level. So, how about you, you mentioned that there you think that there are additional specific ICU resources that are necessary. Can you talk about some of those whether it's you know human resources, whether it's other things and and how that potentially can translate in smaller community-based intensive care units? Sure. I mean, I think at, at on the most concrete level, we have to recognize that despite everything that you and I have been talking about we're going to be seeing more admissions to the ICU with opioid overdoses. And so that has implications for how um, ICUs are potentially staffed, how available renal replacement therapy is, um, how quickly uh, smaller institutions want to move to transfer patients to more tertiary care centers, and at, at what point do they want to initiate that process. So there's some very concrete things about as uh, ICUs, and and this is this is with the associate MICU director hat on. How are we going to think about having the appropriate resources for this population? But then um, taking a step back from that and saying, um, how do we want to then um, improve on the care that we're giving to this this patient population? Well, I think that has to do with some of the things that that we mentioned about uh, revisiting sedation and some of our sedation assumptions. Um, in in our ICUs, it has to do with um, making resources in social work available to patients and families, giving families spaces to um, to uh, engage with the process of getting their family member into recovery or or start to um, to really speak to the families of our patients who are admitted, and then quite frankly, it's also supporting our staff, right? Because like I mentioned, these are these are young people typically, and they are being treated by young people, whether they be trainees or nurses or respiratory therapists. And that providing the support for staff is also another component to the resources that I think we're going to need. Well said. So how would you approach or how are you approaching dissemination of, of your study findings to stakeholders like hospital leadership, your own and others? government, local, and otherwise, and, and ultimately to the frontline clinicians? Well, well, being on this podcast, first of all, so thank you for including <laughs> us in that. Um, <laughs> but we've, you know, we've been really pleased to see how much attention the lay press has given this, this particular study at every stage. I think that there is a lot of interest in any medical research that can help to explain what's going on, right, to give some some frame of reference, um, a reality test to what I think a lot of people are experiencing. And a lot of people in the community are grieving or very worried or both, and policymakers are trying to figure out how to respond to that. Um, within our own institution, we're looking at how to uh, best implement and um, expand on medication-assisted therapy. We're looking at how to make Narcan available to patients who get admitted. We have a goal. Um, uh, we have a focus on this within our own 
division and department and then as an institution. But the value of this study is, is also something more specific. Frankly, there's people who don't get as upset as maybe they should about drug users dying of overdoses. And I think this kind of work really helps to it really helps to underline the fact that this is an epidemic that has large costs that may not always be obvious at first blush, right? That we we think that this really is something that even if it doesn't touch us emotionally, sometimes it's going to touch us financially. Um, so we hope that this kind of work can be used by people who are trying to model the cost of the opioid epidemic and make the case that prevention and treatment can be cost effective. Again, very well said. So, um are you and your colleagues planning any next steps, specifically from a research standpoint? Or is there going to be some follow-up studies or a different epidemiologic approach to this? You know, right now, based on what we found, we're going to start to um, look at where gaps exist in the ICU care for this population. That's where we're really focusing um, so that as a community of critical care physicians, we can think about how to do this better and more consistently, really, across all of our ICUs. Um, so... We're, we're thinking about how to do care in the ICU better and um, uh, both explore that and then intervene on that. And then we're also looking at what to do when people leave the ICU, so how we can get in front of that. Well, best of luck with that with that moving forward. This is this is very, very important <laughs> <Thank you>. work. <laughs> so as we, as we come to the end of our time, I thought it'd be important just to really take us back and, and really leave our audience with two or three, you know, important take-home messages about your study for the clinicians uh, and other stakeholders? You know, I think um, as part of this podcast, we've explored a lot of the um, subtleties of this. I think in essence, our study is is really blunt. Um, it's, it's a description of how this epidemic has hit the most resource intense part of our healthcare system. And despite, again, everything that we can do there, we are not able to get in front of this population dying. Um, we continue to lose ground on this and that um, either an explanation has to come out of, um, of decreasing the total overdoses or doing this uh, better. But for critical care doctors listening to this, I think it underlines that it isn't just an issue for the morning newspaper or for the local city council meeting. It's, it's really our crisis as well in a very distinct way. And I think a lot of us are feeling that in the ICU, so something like this gives numbers to that feeling. Any final thoughts or comments? No, I just, I really appreciate that you spent the time for this particular podcast on this issue, because like we were saying, this, this continues to deserve the attention that it, that it um, has demanded of us, basically. Well, you're very welcome. I I really enjoyed reading the article. Again, it, it, it caused the, and it provoked lots of thoughts, and I'm glad we've gotten a chance to to really delve into some of the details and even some of the, you know, even some of the um, ideas, even if they're not evidence-based, but that starting that kind of conversation and, and, and generating hypotheses uh, is really, I think, uh, an important way to bring the research and ultimately the, the care of these folks uh, really, uh, really move it forward. So um, thanks again. I'd like to thank Dr. Stevens for joining the podcast today. I hope that you've all found today's discussion on the implications for critical care delivery in this country from the national opioid crisis as provocative uh, and as informative as I have. So uh, until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Uh, thank you for joining in.